Welcome to In the Know with Erin Glow, a podcast bringing you information and inspiration from people in all walks of life. This is Selective Mutism, The Parent's Perspective. Welcome to episode two of In the Know with Erin Glow. In this episode, we'll be discussing the childhood social anxiety disorder called selective mutism from the parent's perspective. This is part two of a three-part episode series, and I'm so happy to talk to two special guests today. There are two women who are mothers of daughters who have or have had selective mutism, and I'm just so grateful for their willingness to share their stories. So let me introduce you to them now. First, we have Anne Romalo. She's the parent of a six-year-old daughter currently under treatment for selective mutism and a presumably neurotypical three-year-old. Anne is a full-time mom and part-time business communications writer and strategist, moonlighting as a freelance editor and award-winning short story author. She and her family live in Los Angeles, California. So welcome to the podcast, Anne. Thank you. It's fun to be here. You're welcome. All right. And our second special guest is Pam Drake. Pam is the mother of a 15-year-old daughter, Charlotte, who has actually overcome selective mutism. Pam's also a researcher, evaluator of programs focused on adolescent risk reduction and health promotion, mostly teen pregnancy and STI prevention or substance use prevention. She and her family live in Glendale, California. So welcome to the podcast, Pam. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So thank you guys so much for being on this episode and for, you know, offering to discuss your journey and with your daughters. The first thing I wanted to talk to you guys about was the beginning of your daughter's selective mutism journey. Why don't we start with you, Anne? Um, If you could tell us a little bit about your family life and the beginning of selective mutism for your daughter. What was that moment like when you realized something was wrong and what was the process that led to you um, getting her diagnosed? Sure. My daughter is the oldest, my first child, and I have been home with her ever since she was a little baby. And there were maybe some signs that go back to like right when she was born. She was really fussy, possibly anxious, but for the first, I don't know, two and a half years, everything seemed pretty normal. She was actually a very early talker and she had a big vocabulary. Her pediatrician said it was kind of out of the stratosphere, some of the words she was saying at the age that she was. Uh, But she was always very kind of cautious and slow to warm in social situations. And then when she was about two and eight months, she started a a part-time preschool and that's when we started to notice that she never talked to her teachers. Right. And it just became more and more apparent as time went on. And really it was about 18 months before she really started talking to them. And still we just thought, okay, she's really shy. She's having a hard time with this. It's a hard adjustment. We didn't know it was a thing until I think we went to her four-year checkup at her pediatrician's, and she was having all kinds of trouble there. She was very, very anxious, like hiding under the exam table. Uh, She had to take an eye exam, and it was one where she had to read the letters from the chart, and she would not read the letters. 
And her pediatrician mentioned toward the end of the appointment, like, this seems like really extreme anxiety. Do you think she has selective mutism? Mm. And I'd never heard of it. And said, I don't know. I'll have to look up more information. But my pediatrician let me know about the term. And then, uh, I mean, she said at the that point that there were resources as a treatment, if that's what it turned out to be, but encouraged me to look into that more. And I did online research and I said, oh my gosh, that's her. And I talked to her preschool teachers. They're like, yeah, that's her. And so then at that point, I just went online looking for specialists. <laughs> and then we had the, the confirmation and the diagnosis from there. So you had no idea what it was? No, I had never heard of it before. Right. Yeah. Most parents don't. I've heard. Thank you so much for sharing that. Pam, what about you and your daughter, Charlotte? I know she's 15 now, right? Yes. Yes. Um, So she, I'd say when she was about 18 months old, um, I had noticed that she, she had started talking normally and then it felt like she didn't progress. Um, if her vocabulary. So that was sort of my first sign that um, there might be something going on. And I remember being in the, with the pediatrician and telling her that, and Charlotte was sitting on my lap and she said, well, I'll, I'll refer you to a language specialist. And I said, okay. And honestly, that day we went, I went home and she started like just talking more, um, which I thought, okay, that was, that's odd. She's sort of, um, it's kind of like she could, but she really didn't. And I started noticing that with other milestones where she could, she could do the, the next milestone, but she, it was like, she was really reluctant to move forward. Um, and then when she, uh, she'd started, I, she was talking to, some family members um, a little bit, and she was talking to, we had a a babysitter that um, came to the home most days, and she was talking to her early on. um, But I noticed that at one point she started getting really sort of uh, stubborn, kind of like with her, with her talking. And I brought that up to the pediatrician also saying that she's like, she's saying, I know it's normal to say no, but she's really like, in the habit of like not just saying no, just automatically saying no. Like she just, no matter what you ask her, that's what she'll say. So again, we kind of looked at that. And then right around three, I noticed that she was becoming much more self-aware. So I'd noticed when you'd, when I talked to her and she was talking back, as she started becoming aware of other people listening to her, she'd start shutting down. And, um, and then sometime between three and three and a half, which is when she started preschool, she had slowly just sort of stopped talking to um, anybody outside of um, uh, me or my husband, her dad, and um, her brother. And, uh, and then that just kind of went on for a while. I mean, it was very obvious. She didn't speak to anybody outside of the three of us until um, she was six. So um, I pretty much knew I had heard of selective mutism. I knew what it was. And so I, I basically recognized that that's what she has because it was so obvious with her. And, um, and so I let the pediatrician know, told her, and she said, yes, that's what it is. And, um, and so that's kind of how we knew. That's funny Pam, that you mentioned the, all of the no's that she said, 
I recognize that and I didn't associate it with selective mutism, but uh, my daughter, when she was maybe two, three, uh, my mother-in-law called her the mm-hmm. queen of no. <laughs> yeah, it was odd mm. because it was more than, even though that's a normal thing, it felt like it was it was way more than normal. And so the, the pediatrician at that point had said it had kind of become a habit for her just to resort to saying no as her response to whatever was um, was being asked. Thank you so much for sharing that. What you said you guys found out your daughter's had selective mutism and you have never heard of it before. Pam, you did. What were your initial reactions and how did you feel as a parent and just as just a person emotionally? Like I know so many people focus on the kids, but how are you as a parent feeling? Were you feeling like, you know, you could have done something to prevent this or did you just feel had bad luck with this or or just I'm interested to know like how the parents feel because me as a you know as a child I know what I felt and I know I saw the distress my mom went through but I've never really actually asked her and maybe I should is like what was going through her head as a person as a parent because um, I know it's a lot of people don't think about that aspect of it and the parents so um yeah and you want to start with that yeah it's Kind of weird, but my initial reaction was relief. Oh, wow. Because we'd been dealing with this for quite a few months, over a year by the time that I found out what this was. I said, oh, this isn't just some thing unique to her. It's it's not just my weird problem. This is a thing. And there's a path forward. Interesting. So just having a name to what was going on helped me, I think. Uh, I remember one of her teachers, when we found out what was going on and I told them, they said, wow, that must be so hard. I'm like, actually, I'm really relieved (laughs) that we've identified this and we can move forward with it. (laughs) Because I knew there was something wrong. I just didn't know that there was potentially a solution, I guess. Right, right. It was a relief to put a name to it and knew that, you know, other kids had it. Yeah. That makes sense. Just to know that we weren't completely alone in this because in my experience, it was more extreme than any other kid. You know, there are shy people, but then they warm up. Right. It's not, yeah, they definitely, it's... This is beyond. Yeah, many people think it's shyness at first and that's what they don't realize. is that, yeah, eventually shy people warm up. They'll even talk low if they have to, but if they don't talk at all, that's a problem. Yeah, and I was a shy kid growing up, so I could understand that, but then when it persisted at that level, I was really personally baffled. I felt like we'd kind of solved a mystery. You know? Right, right, yeah. Okay, and Pam, you want to? Yeah, I think for for me, uh, because I, I, it wasn't a surprise, it was something that, um, you know, I had heard of it. So it it was, um, I didn't have to do much searching. It's, it's just something that I knew was wrong. Um, Initially, I felt because most of the research had said, if you catch it early, then you know what it is, which I'd heard that a lot of people didn't know what it was. And so I felt very fortunate that I had caught it early because the research was showing that it was, um, you could, you could deal with it. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of things you could do. And there were, there were some resources at that time, there have been more over the years. But so I think at first, I didn't 
I didn't feel like this was going to be something we were going to deal with with as many years as we ended up dealing with it. I really felt like uh, we we knew she was still not um, uh, she was still in preschool, and I honestly felt like we were going to be able to get her past it uh, by the time she ended preschool, and that she would start elementary school, start kindergarten, and be fine, be talking. So initially, I didn't really have much anxiety about it. It was just something, okay, great, we'll just overcome this. And um, and then through the years, and my anxiety kind of like went up and down because we dealt with it and, until she was 11. So it was a, a long time. Right. Can you guys describe an experience, um, specific experience, where you felt helpless in the moment when they were showing their selective mutism? And how did you get through that? It could be before you knew about it, like knew what it officially was or after. I've had a hard time narrowing it down to just one thing. It makes you as a parent feel really, really helpless a lot of times. But I was thinking about that question. And one experience that I felt really helpless about was sending her to kindergarten. In preschool, it was a part-day program. It was something that she was familiar with. It was a a co-op preschool that was all play-based and just really low pressure. And it was only three hours a day. And I felt really comfortable with that. But sending her off to kindergarten where she hadn't had a chance to meet her teacher or really go around the school and we didn't know what to expect was stressful for me and something that I kind of just lived in anticipation of for probably a year, really, (laughs) because we're in LAUSD and it involves a lot of research and picking the right school. And so there's all of that lead up. And then comes the first day of school and they're whisked away to their class and that's it. And they go into this black hole. And I was just wondering all day long and wondering how she would deal with it. She kind of, I have this picture of her in the auditorium as they're doing the, the sorting hat kind of thing on the first day and sending the kids off to their classes. And she just has this wide eyed shell shocked look on her face (laughs) and just wondering, okay, how is she going to be? How did she do? Did she make it to the bathroom? All of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh (laughs) yeah. I totally can relate. When I was a kid and I started school, I, wouldn't let my mom leave the room. Like I was clinging on to her and, and she was like, you could tell she felt so bad. They didn't let parents in the room for us. They like had all of the kids join their teacher on the blacktop and then the teacher marched them into the classroom. <laughs> they were gone by the time I even got out there. I didn't get to see them go off. <laughs> wow. So there's all this, you know, like year of anticipation and then that anticlimactic, like, okay, that was it. <laughs> right. Wow. I had so many rehearsals. Like I had her put on her uniform and put on her backpack, the test runs at home. I actually made her these index cards that she could use in an emergency and put them on a little key ring. There was one that was just, I need help. And one that was, I need the bathroom. That was a good idea. So, yeah. And what's interesting is for, for, for me, because my daughter, I, I, my son was three years older than my daughter. So we actually, um, he had gone through school before her and that helped so much because 
she knew his teachers. So we were, the school worked very, very closely with us. And, uh, and so we, we placed her, uh, we would meet and we'd place her in whatever class, you know, she might, usually we went with my son's teacher because she had had sort of a relationship with that teacher through my son having had a teacher. Um, so I was super fortunate when I've talked to people, I really, um, the, the school, my school system was wonderful. They pretty much with the, on a 504 plan, give us anything that we wanted, that we asked for. And so I was always able to walk into the classroom with her and do, um, you know, do whatever I needed to do. But I'd say though, I still had that anxiety. Every time she, there was something new that she had to do or um, go to be with somebody that was, that was different. I, there'd be that moment of, of panic. And, and I think for me, it was more related to at the early age um, using the bathroom. Like, was she what was going to happen if she really, if she had to use a bathroom, was she going to go? Was she going to not go? And I worked with the schools on some um, different processes, like in kindergarten, what they decided is they were, they just, every, all the kids would line up and they'd all go take their turn going. And so it was never, uh, it wasn't for any of them sort of like a, something they had to ask to do. They had set times that they all went. And so Again, the teacher had done that for us and for her, uh, and um, so I was able to the the working with the schools. They were able to come up with strategies that would at least help me um, help me a little bit get over that anxiety of 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 those new situations. But anytime you'd be out and somebody would ask a question, it's like I just remember that feeling like in my heart of like. Oh, you know, here we go again. Do I, you know, do I say something? What do I say? And um, uh, so it's just uh, new people, new situations. Everything is is difficult. Totally understandable. That was really helpful. Uh, the teacher doing that with the bathroom, I think, it's torture to to sit there and have to go to the bathroom, and you know, you can't ask. You know, the more more and more I talk to parents now, I see like how it's changed over the years. Because when I went through it, it was in the 80s. So like the late 80s. So I think like it just shows the progress, even though it's still, you know, relatively unheard of by a lot of people. It's it really does show the progress we're making and just you guys speaking out and everything. I think it helps. So thank you. Yeah. And bathroom just it's one of those things you wouldn't necessarily think of Mm -hmm. to be a problem. We had this awful incident where a friend and his mom were picking her up from a, a little camp that she went to. Well, I think I had some kind of meeting or appointment or something and taking her to the library down the street and they were just going to hang out there for a while. And it seemed so simple. I forgot to mention anything about the bathroom and she had an accident and I came and had to take care of that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you just, and you feel so horrible when you realize that, um, because I think what I what you you try to do is overcompensate and try to control all the situations so that you've told everybody everything they need to know and you've sort of like set it up so that there can't be an emergency and then when you realize that you didn't set that up it's it's um, you yeah. just feel like such a failure um, at that point and and then there's a th- thought of like what happens if they get lost or um, you know will they oh my gosh or scare, I would write her phone number, my yes. phone number on her arm. 
when we went out to places, like if we went to the zoo or Disneyland or something, I would write my phone number on her arm. Yeah, we had bracelets. We got bracelets for her that had the phone numbers on it. And yeah, it was, it was really like, you just, you just, um, you just keep her right like next to you all the time because of this fear of, you know, wondering if, if something happened, would she, would it just come out and she would scream or, or is, would she still be, um, still not be able to, to do anything or say anything. Yeah. And I know when she does get separated from me for just little instances, like in the store, if she goes around a corner or one time she got kind of behind us at the beach and separated. And those are such stressful experiences for her just because of not being able to to yeah. ask for help for anyone around her. Can you guys explain what course of action your daughters have taken toward recovery? I know Charlotte, Pam's daughter, has overcome it, thankfully, and she's 15 now. But if you could discuss, uh, Pam, what she did to help, you know overcome it eventually and the coping mechanisms that you used to get through it. And also, did it affect your f- entire family or just certain people in your family? Um like even friendships, your own friendship, to not go out, um, things like that. Yeah. So Charlotte had, it was pretty severe. Uh, she, as I said, until she was um, just before she started kindergarten, she was almost, she was a November birthday. So she's an older student. Um, she only spoke to three people, my husband, me and um, her brother. And we were able to, um, get her to eventually talk to two peers right before she started kindergarten. But then at that point, so she had five people and then she did not speak to anybody else other than those five until about third grade. She was about eight. So it was pretty severe and she didn't order in restaurants. You know, she wasn't even like talking to strangers or anybody. She didn't talk to anybody. It was like five people and that was it until she was um, eight years old. And so initially, um, I thought I, I really felt like we could overcome this on our own. And, and I think for my husband, my husband always felt like, oh, she's just shy. She's just shy. She'll get over it. And I was recognizing like really more of the severity of it. Um, so I think it took some time for us to really get on the same page. And I, so I worked first with the school. We had, um, we had a 504 plan. The school psychologist worked with her. Uh, so I really felt like we, I, re- I did tons of research. I'm a researcher, so I would find whatever I could find. I would find that and I would, we, you know, try different strategies with her. We'd try video, you know, tape recording, you know, anything that we could, we could think of. Uh, through the schools, and we we would manage to every year maybe get her to read with a teacher or be able to do something. Usually toward the end of the school year, and then it was then we'd sort of start over again the next school year, and she you know go would go back the next school year and not be talking, and it would take maybe the whole school year, and then eventually at the end she might say you know a word or read something and. But I was I would get frustrated because it was it's like we weren't making progress. I'd see think maybe we were. And then so I try a different strategy. And I think the frustration was that I I never felt like I could be really consistent in what we were doing. Sometimes I'd get mad. I'd lose my temper. And it's like um, and you'd want to sort of say, you know, you're 
you know, you have to talk because you're, you're not going to be able to get along in the world if you don't talk. And, um, and so it got, it was, it was hard to get through those years and sort of like the ups and downs and not really seeing any progress or seeing really tiny progress, but then getting to the summer and it just starts over again. So just before she started third grade, I recognized we had to try medication. Uh, and um, I'd done enough research by that point that I recognized that we had to um, try medication. My husband didn't want to initially. And I also realized that we needed to see a, a therapist to work with her. So I found a therapist. Um, we, I talked to her and just said, you know, I think we need medication. And I don't know if my husband's on board. And so she said, that's fine. I can, I'll talk through it with you too. And so she did. And we, um, we both agreed we would try medication. Then at that point had then the psychiatrist, which was really nice to have like another person working with us. And she was on, um, we initially put her on Zoloft and I'd say like almost immediately, uh, she was able to start working in at school to to gradually add peers to her um, kind of speaking group, and so the teacher again I said our teachers were great. The teacher would let her at lunch bring a, one of her friends that she talked to up to the room, and then bring a new student that she wanted to talk to up to the room. And they she would sometimes make up like a little um, like a little play that they would each sort of say the words kind of like lines back and forth. Or she she came up with whatever she felt with that person would help her to speak with them. So during that year, she gradually was adding starting to add peers. And so we'd work with the therapist on um on her identifying, she didn't speak to her therapist at all, but we'd work on her identifying with the therapist um, who she wanted to add into her her talking circle. Unfortunately, with the medication, she was having physical reactions to it. So we went from Zoloft to Prozac to Effexor. And um, physically, she couldn't end up taking, um, staying on any of them. And then by the time we went through the effects at that point, she's just like, I'm not taking any more medication. And, uh, but I'd say, I think we were probably on medication for a full, maybe eight months. And by the end of that, I remember going to school one day and picking her up and kids were coming up to her and they were saying things to her and she was saying something to them quietly and it was like, wow, she kind of looks normal. And so that was like, that was just exciting to me to finally see a day where I felt like my daughter looks like everybody else. She's talking to them. And she was always really super social, even though, and so some people actually would insist to me, oh no, she spoke, she spoke because she was so social and she had tons of friends. And for her, I think she never, she didn't have a lot of motivation to speak because her life was fine without it. She had friends, she would go to play dates and things like that. She just would talk. But when she got into, so we kind of continued on this. She wasn't adding adults in it. We, she at least was talking to peers. And then when she got into fifth grade that fall, it was still one of these things where we were making such little progress that uh, I had decided to go to the Selective Mutism Association meeting, which happened to be here in Manhattan Beach that year. 
And I was sitting there and it was just so overwhelming because they were talking about all these young children. And now my daughter is 10 and they're talking about all these young children and how difficult it is as they get older to overcome this because they have come up with all these comorbidities and stuff. And, um, and so I started feeling really depressed. Like this is, this is not going to, to help at all. And uh, then one of the sessions they were talking about the We Speak camp, which was which had just been piloted once, and it was specifically made for um, tweens. And so, because one of the things that they, some of the techniques that they were doing with these young children, I thought there's no way I could do that with my my 10, almost 11 year old daughter that she's just going to think, why are you talking to me like that? Because a lot of it was the repeating what they were saying and stuff. I thought she's just, she's too savvy. I, I can't do that. And it's going to be weird. So I decided uh, to call to contact Dr. Shelley Abney. And, and I, I, at that point I was like, I, I don't think I'm really going to do this. I don't think we really need this. I don't think I'm going to do this, but I'm going to call her anyway. And so I called her and I, I, she was very forceful and, um, kind of was almost sort of like, okay, so we're going to sign her up. I'm doing a session in January and we're going to sign her up for it in New York. I'm like, I don't think I'm ready for this. And, and it was just sort of like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. And I'm going to do a couple zoom sessions with her and, um, and I just kept thinking, I don't know, this isn't going to, I don't think this is going to work and it's a lot of money. And so, but eventually we were just, let, we're just going to do this. And so um, we went for uh, nine days to New York City. She did the We Speak camp for three days. They, um, she did a couple uh, Zoom sessions with Dr. Abney before she started. Uh, and then when we got there, they did three pre-sessions with her. So the first pre-session, uh, they were, they, we walked in there, we were playing a little bit and they were able to get her to speak to three adults that day, which just blew me away. They were so good at what they did. And that just blew me away. And then her next session, she was talking to her mentor who was going to be with her for the full three days. And she absolutely bonded this the whole experience of going to New York was a real bonding experience for us it was so exciting to her and uh, the first day of camp they had her ordering at Starbucks and by the end of the three days they had her at Bloomingdale's um, talking to sales um, persons and this was in January of her fifth grade year she was starting sixth grade at middle school the next year um, in June of that year, um, when she finished promoted from fifth grade, she went up with a friend and led the flag salute for everybody. The all the parents are like you know probably several hundred people in this auditorium, and she led the flag salute for that. Um, and then she started middle school the next year and uh, was fully verbal. Wow, what a journey that is to go to the Big Apple and then there's where everything kind of came into place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, loved, <laughs> she loved New York. She loved the experience. And I just think so many things came together at that moment. She's, there were a few struggles when she came back, but 
they they worked with her therapist. In fact, she eventually talked to her therapist, which is also very rare that it's often difficult because they become contaminated. And she did talk to her therapist. Um, I mean, we, we didn't even have her in therapy for a full year after this. And they also um, worked with the school psychologist who was doing a girl power camp with her and stuff. And uh, so there was still definitely some work, but not a lot. It was sort of like that going to that, those three days was a huge tipping point for us. And she walked out of there a changed person. Wow. So that was your big breakthrough moment. Yes. Yes. So great that they have that. And oh my gosh. So Anne, your daughter is still in the midst of this. Yeah. What has she, what have you uh, been doing with her? Has she been going to therapy or is she trying medication? And just how have you been coping with it? And has it been affecting your family or friendships? Sure. Um, she is currently under treatment. We've been doing a play-based behavior therapy since really right around when she got diagnosed. So oh, going on three years, we've been... Uh, meeting with a therapist for behavioral and family therapy. So little sister goes along. I go along the whole time. The first 45 minutes we'll play games or do a project or something really more than 45 minutes. And then I leave usually the kids with one of the, the center interns and then ha- meet individually with her therapist to talk about family strategies or personal strategies for her or just resolve whatever's going on at the time. And it probably is bigger than just selective mutism. It's, I I think, contaminated some other things in her life. But um, yeah, we've been working on it kind of holistically. And then through her school, they don't actually have a, a psychologist at her school, but she's in an art therapy program this year. And uh, there's a, a small group meeting and then an individual meeting with a counselor weekly. And I've just been pretty deliberate about some things in our lives, too, outside of any formal therapy, like just making sure that she is socialized as much as possible, uh, going on play dates. Or I joined a, a mommy and me group when she was really little. And just making sure that we continue relationships with that, that she's had lifelong friends who she can talk to. Um, I think she was never as extreme in her expression of selective mutism as Charlotte, fortunately. Um, She had friends who she would talk to. Uh, She would sometimes talk to the friend's parents. Uh, She talked to our extended families. So that was fortunate. And just keeping her in touch with those people. And another thing that I've personally been kind of uh, passionate about is just teaching her to be comfortable with this feeling of discomfort, really establishing a growth mindset. I can remember specifically one time at the park, she was afraid to climb this contraption. I forget if it was climbing up or down, but she got stuck. And so I go in and support her little by little. She got more comfortable doing it on her own until she was climbing and jumping down. And I stopped and I told her, okay, remember back to how hard it was in the beginning. 
and really think about that and feel it all over again. And now think about how good you feel in this moment now that you've worked through it. And I don't know, some part of me believes that she'll be able to transfer that experience and that feeling. The summer before kindergarten, we worked really hard. Like she learned to rollerblade, she learned to swim and, and just setting up these experiences where she can transfer working through something hard. It is a little stressful on the social life. Like I'll go out to birthday parties for her friends where the parents are my friends and it would be nice to just sit around and talk to other grown-ups for a while while my kid goes off and plays with kids. Right. But <laughs> it's just, she still wants to play with me and feels most comfortable playing with me. And so for a long time, and it's still in some situations, it's hard to just sit back and socialize with other adults right, with right. my kid there. <laughs> but as far as with family, I think getting... Uh, a diagnosis of selective mutism was helpful. It helped them understand what was going on. I mean, she did talk to extended family, but sometimes maybe she was a little stingy with her words or uh, like with my grandma, for example, her great grandma, she was kind of inhibited and, and would get kind of anxious and shut down sometimes. And just to be able to tell them, look, it's nothing personal. Okay. She loves you <laughs> was helpful. Like this is just a, a thing that right. we're working on. Yeah. You know, for me that because Charlotte didn't talk to extended family members, uh, I would, I was met with sometimes mixed reactions. I think there were family members who didn't either believe it or understand it. And, um, and so there was always this sort of this kind of feeling of stress when I was around certain family members, because some people would want to pressure her into talking or kind of bully her into talking. Um, you know, we're, we, I won't let you do this. If you really want to do this, you'll ask me for it. Right, or, yeah. um, and so, and I would feel horrible that they were putting her in, in that situation. Sometimes I wouldn't know until later that that happened. And so that was, that was always difficult. I, I felt, I sometimes would feel judged. Like I, it, that either people were looking at me like, oh, you're just babying her and, and that's why, or that must've been something that happened and that's why she won't talk. So there was often the feeling of being judged and, and again, wondering like how much people really really believed it because I know they weren't doing all the research that I was doing and understanding it the same way that, that I was, um, was understanding it. I can't tell you how many times, um, I remember my mom as a kid and people would say the same thing, like, Oh, don't baby her. Let her speak for herself. Don't answer for her. You know, like they didn't get it. They thought it was just this. Oh, baby. you know, yeah, I even got some of that from my mom, I think in the beginning and the more she understood about selective mutism, the more she, I guess, accepted and supported what I was doing as a parent. And it is hard not to talk for them in some right. situations to just leave that dead air. And maybe at some points I was jumping in too quickly. One of my, I guess, areas for growth as a parent to a kid with selective mutism has been to give her more space to answer. For me personally, it's hard that just overhanging silence. Right, yeah. 
Yeah, we went we went through that too, and and having to talk to teachers when she got to the point of probably second grade and saying that you need to sort of stop and count to three before yeah. you move on because she was becoming very comfortable with other people speaking for her that um, we knew we had to give a little a little bit of discomfort in the not speaking at um, at times. And and you were you were talking about the kind of being. Um, comfortable with being uncomfortable, which was kind of the motto of um, of the We Speak camp that Charlotte uh, was part of. And uh-huh. that was one of the things that was interesting because in the early research that I was doing when Charlotte was first got diagnosed, there was a lot of talk about in anxiety, making them comfortable and before the, so don't expect speaking, just make them comfortable. And when they're comfortable, then they'll speak. And so overcoming sort of like that social discomfort. And then what had really switched in the years before I had attended that Selective Mutism uh, Association conference is they started recognizing that for that, that wasn't working for um, children with Selective Mutism and that we had to teach them that need to speak in spite of still feeling uncomfortable and still feeling that anxiety. And so that was a real mind shift for me of that, um, that thinking. And that was sort of the motto of, of that camp was, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So that's what they really focused on is that it's going to feel funny and it's going to feel hard and, um, and you're not going to like it, but you can still do it. Even though you have these feelings, you, we're not going to wait for them to go away before you, before you speak. And Maybe your daughter was really the right age to hear that too. Um, yes. One thing, uh, I never have told my daughter that she has selective mutism. It's not a term that she would identify with. She just knows it's hard for her to talk in some situations. Yes, we didn't. We were the same way when she was very young. And then it wasn't until she was much older that we introduced yeah, her. Yeah. And I, even when we were introducing her therapist, I didn't say this is a doctor because we ended up there because she had such anxiety at her doctor's office. I just said, uh, I have this new friend. Her name is Queen Esther and she has a really cool job. Uh, She teaches people how to be brave. And I thought maybe it would be good if we went and saw her. And so she warmed up pretty quickly. Uh, She didn't have very much the issue of not talking to her therapist. I mean, she doesn't like to talk to her about her feelings or anything, but she does talk to her. And at school now, she will kind of speak the bare minimum sometimes if she's in the mood, like answer her teacher's questions briefly. Or I think before the pandemic, she did have friends who she would talk to sometimes. So I want to ask you guys a question. I'm always curious. I know. I had a hard time when there were substitute teachers because they didn't know they they yes. didn't yeah they didn't know anything yes. and they weren't told anything. So I'm just wondering yes. for your daughters and in, in school especially if that happens do the the fellow classmates kind of because uh, I remember when I was expected to read out loud at first it was very awkward but as because I was in the same class for six years with the same classmates for six years. And then eventually they would say, oh, she doesn't talk, so you can move on. And sometimes the substitutes would be like, okay, and move on. And sometimes they'd be like, what do you mean? Like, no, she has to do it too. She has to read like everybody else. And they'd wait. And then eventually they'd realize 
you know, I'm not going to say anything or they'd send me to the principal's office. But is that something that your daughters went through? Do their classmates kind of back them up or do they just kind of step away and not really sure? Yes. Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because actually now if I would go back to that earlier question about the, like when you felt helpless and it, what substitutes were, I would say probably the number one thing. I was so worried about when there was a substitute and what if the teacher was actually really passing on, especially if there was something that, you know, was they were sick and so they didn't have time to plan for it. So I really worried about how that she'd get through substitutes and her classmates were like so, so, so protective of her and, um, and always, you know, where Charlotte doesn't talk, Charlotte doesn't talk. And so I think some of the substitutes got to know her um, after a while and, um, but she never said anything that anybody ever sort of forced her into into talking or that it was ever traumatic or she had a problem with a substitute. So I, I do think that they must have either believed the, the class or, or something. But yes, her classmates absolutely would um, would tell anybody who didn't know Charlotte doesn't talk. It's good to know that, you know, you, they kind of back her up. I know it's like you feel that support. <laughs> even though you know you're different and it's awkward. Okay, I'm going to have a stop right there for a second. And before we go on to part two of our episode, I'd like to take a moment for Love Letter Break. This is Love Letter Break, which is a break I take in each episode to ask my guests to come up with one to three people who have made a difference in their lives and share a sentence or phrase they'd like to say to them to express gratitude. So I understand that both of you included people who were involved in your daughter's selective mutism journeys. So Anne, let's start with you. What three people did you choose and what would you like to say to them? My first one is to her teacher, Terry, her first preschool teacher that she started talking to. And I actually wrote her a a really short poem for her birthday one year that I'm going to share. Great. That time you hunted roly-polies, eye level by the creek. She really opened up then, confidence igniting, voice emerging. And my next one is to our therapist, Queen Esther, or Dr. Hess, a fellow scientist, Thank you for embracing my daughter's interests and helping her see herself as someone smart and interested. And my last one is just a a general note to all of our family, which is thank you for learning and supporting us in this. Wow, I love it. Thank you so much. And Pam, your love letter break, people. Um, first, I'd say to Dr. Shelley Avney, um, who was the, um, the the person who changed her life, just basically saying that you're still so much a part of our world. She's she's become a, a close a, a friend of ours, and um, and Charlotte um, just adores her. So thank you, thank you, thank you for everything you did. And to her, uh, her therapist, Robin, who um, worked many years with her and was patient and, you know, did everything, you know, she could think of um, to get us through this, that Charlotte just really misses having a reason to, to go in and to see you. And my last one, I have to, uh, my mother passed away 30 years ago, the end of this month. 
And so, um, so she's been really like heavily on my mind. She never got to meet my children or Charlotte or help me through this journey, but just saying that you're always, always, always in my heart still. And I think about you, uh, every day. Well, thank you so much. Those were truly wonderful. I'm, I'm impressed you guys, (laughs) but thank you guys so much for sharing that. Okay, so now let's get on with part two of our episode where we'll be focusing on your current situations and a little bit of the future. Anne, what are some of the fears you have as your daughter continues to go through selective mutism and what kinds of things bring you hope for the future? I had a long list, unfortunately. Um, One of them is just about friends and her ability to make friends in the I don't know, seven months that she was in kindergarten, she mostly played alone at recess. And that made me very sad. And Mm. I think just, I know that her school and maybe schools in general with the the common core stuff um, have a lot of presentation work, especially as you go into the upper grades. I know being able to present ideas to the class is like a a big standard that they have to meet for their grades. And that worries me, just her reaction to it. I worry about her being overlooked or left behind, not being able to express how much she knows and how much she thinks, because I know there's so much more to her than most people are able to see. Uh, I worry about her not pursuing certain opportunities for herself just not speaking up for herself. And one of the biggest things is I just worry how this anxiety is affecting her attitude toward learning and about the the different classes and activities she declines to avoid talking or about the way right now she hides from reading and that it's just poisoned her whole attitude toward all of this organized learning because of the anxiety that she feels in school. Um, things that give me hope for the future. One of them is just hearing amazing stories about people who have overcome selective mutism, hearing that it's usually not uh, at least an active lifelong affliction. Just the idea of getting older and her brain developing more to where she can choose more control over the situation. Or Also just moments of connection that my daughter and I have. Just for example, uh, this last week she taught herself how to whistle. And it's something that she's been working on for, I don't know, weeks, months, or she's had it in the back of her mind for a long time since Peppa Pig learned how to whistle probably. But uh, she finally started making this little noise between her lips that sounds like a tea kettle about to boil. (laughs) And uh, so whenever she would work on whistling, I'd sing that uh, Stephen Sondheim song, Anyone Can Whistle. (laughs) And uh, once I said, yeah, yeah, that counts as whistling, she beat me to it. She was like, anyone can whistle. (laughs) (laughs) and I I just brought it up like do you know what that song means or do you know how the rest of the song goes and I sung it for her there's a a line in there that goes what's hard is simple what's natural comes hard and I said I can relate to that personally and I think the person who wrote the song can too do you ever feel like that what's hard is simple and what's natural comes hard and she's like Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was with talking. And we just had a, a moment where we connected over that and just seeing how she's aware of it and how she works through things and little moments that develop my faith in her and her strength and perseverance. And Pam, what were your fears that you had while your daughter was going through selective mutism? And now that she's overcome it, have your feelings changed? Do you still have those fears? And does she say or do anything that causes you to have that fear? And also, is there anything that she does that, you know, obviously she overcame it, but is there anything else that just makes you step back and say, yeah, we really have come a long way and we're headed for a future without selective mutism? Yeah. Um, for many years, I just, I wasn't sure if she'd ever overcome this um, because we'd had so many, what I saw as kind of setbacks where we'd make a little progress and then it just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. Or, you know, at one point it seemed, it seemed overwhelming because the steps were so tiny. Um, We were trying to get her to talk to her, her babysitter who'd been with her since she was born. And it was, well, here, read this book to mom and she'll be in the room. And then it was like, that was too big. Well, she's going to stand at the door. She's going to stand outside the door. And then it was just even like, okay, she's going to be in the house where you can't see her. And then she would just like very quietly whisper it to me. And it was at, it was moments like that where I felt like this is so overwhelming, like having to, if that's a step, you know, and, and we have to do that with everybody, this is, we're never going to get anywhere. And so, um, so I often had the fear that it would, you know, it was going to be well into old age before we'd really be able to work through this um, with her. And then the fear of her not being able to, to go off and to, um, to have a life and, you know, in elementary school, going into, into middle school and then thinking about even going into high school and will her friends still be as, um, understanding uh, as she got older or would she be left behind as they moved on and so fortunately you know everything changed before uh, before we that was all, all that all played out I still get that feeling inside my heart you know at times when somebody new talks to her um, I, I still wonder um, has she, is she really over it so we went and uh, recently there was a friend of mine was with us and I knew it was somebody that she had known that she had 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 been around us when she wasn't speaking and uh, this was the first time even though she's been um, speaking for four years this is the first time he'd been around her when she was speaking. And so there was that moment of, okay, well, is she going to not speak um, to him? Or And she did. And so I still have those moments every time there's kind of somebody new or somebody from the past that hasn't been around us. I wonder if if she's going to uh, to speak. So it's still kind of there, always in the back of my mind. However, I know that even if it does flare up in in, in situations they would be so so isolated that it's it's not going to uh, to really affect her life she'll be fine and i know that anybody who would meet her now would never ever know that she had ever had selective mutism so i i do she hasn't embraced it as a part of her she doesn't like to talk about it she isn't super introspective about it um in fact this person that we just saw 
my husband had talked to him before and he had said, oh, I've never heard Charlotte's voice. And um, a couple of days later, my husband had said that to Charlotte and she was really quiet for the rest of the evening. And I asked her what was wrong. And she said, I don't, I don't like, I don't like knowing that. I don't like, I don't like thinking about it because sometimes I will be sitting with people that I know knew that I didn't talk. And I think about the fact that they know that I didn't talk and it really bothers me. So, so that it's still, there's still something there, but it doesn't keep her from talking. Uh, which is good, but it's, it's still a part of her that she hasn't really fully embraced as somebody that she was and really want to to talk about it. Um, I sometimes ask her like, what did it feel like? Or do you know where it came from? And she just doesn't, she just really shuts down and doesn't really want to, um, to, to speak about it. So, um, so I do know that there's still there's still something there, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't keep her from speaking and it doesn't really affect her, her day-to-day life. I worry about her being able to, to stand up for herself to all the time. So, um, to be able to argue, um, she, she tends to be pretty kind of passive, um, when it comes to, to sort of fighting, she can be stubborn, but not verbally. So, and so I, I worry about, you know, will she verbally stand up for herself and say what she wants? Um, sometimes I think she says it's, she's not sure. She says a lot of, I don't know, I don't know, because she's not quite sure um, the right words, the, the right things that she wants to say. And so I don't know is kind of like her fallback because she's afraid to either say the wrong thing or to ask for something that she's not going to be able to get. So there's definitely um, something that is lingering still, but, but I know that she will always speak. And it, it is little moments like I, you know, with this friend of ours, when she, that first moment of relief, like, ah, oh, she is talking. I mean, she's done things like at the middle school, um, taken groups of kids around the school by herself and given tours of the of the campus she's she's fine on zoom she does all of her zoom things she's volunteered to be on panels to um, you know to talk about what it's like in her middle school and now she's in high school she moved into high school in zoom and had no problem being part of the the zoom classes and so you know when I see her day to day I know that I, I don't really have to worry about her ever really kind of regressing back to full-on selective mutism. I can totally relate to what you said about the people who knew her when she didn't talk. It's like a big deal. Even after I, you know, decided to speak out loud in school and and everything, it was like a fresh start. But then, you know, I had my oldest siblings who I didn't speak to. And even though I decided to start speaking, I, they were the ones I took the longest to speak to because they knew me all my life and they knew I didn't talk and it just felt weird. And if I didn't want them to make a big deal out of it, and it just seems like it's, it's a lot easier to talk to new people because they don't know your background as opposed to people who did know you. And they feel like that's a lot harder for some reason. It's yeah, more anxiety. I think she thinks that they think about it, you know, that it's always, that it's there. And it, I was, was surprised when she said that, the, that day that even with my, with my aunt and uncle, that she, 
because I mentioned them and she said, well, I do think about it even when I'm talking with them. So, um, so even though she's talking, I guess at the back of her mind, she is remembering, I, I didn't talk to these people before and they know that and that's weird. And, um, and so yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's like, it's just kind of there, but she said it doesn't keep her from talking or doing, but it's just an awareness that's sort of like always there with her. Yeah. And it, it's almost like you say in your head, oh, please don't mention that I didn't talk. Please don't mention that I didn't talk. I, I just don't want to think about it, you know, like, because it's like yeah. that fear of, oh, they're going to mention it. It's going to be this big deal and it's going to make me feel weird. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to get away from. I just want to fit in. And yeah. All right. As parents of children with selective mutism, what do you guys think would help or did help if you've already gotten help? to get through the process for you as a parent, not, not the child so much, but you as a parent, do you think talking to other parents is, is a good way to help you cope emotionally, uh, support groups? Do you like to read about it, uh, the disorder, or do you go to even your own therapy? Yeah, I did go to therapy and there was a point where I realized that there was, um, my anxiety was in dealing with it was, um, something I had to be able to get support for, and that was really helpful. Um, I, I remember after coming back from the camp and even the Selective Mutism Association conference and telling my therapist that it just I just never really thought of my daughter as like having special needs. And then this kind of realizing of like this tremendous amount of work that it was taking and the amount of energy and that I just really never... Um, never recognize that. And so having somebody to talk to was really helpful. And then I, as I said earlier, I'm a researcher, so I've read everything. I found books I um, and they've gotten really good. <laughs> I wish some of them were around in the early days, um, but there are some really good books out there now and some lots of really um, lots of strategies. So that helped. And, and then as I've met um, more people through the years that have that get what it was and know what it what it is, it, it's nice to be able to talk to people who, who get it. What books have you read, Pam, that you recommend that you wish were around? The, the one was from, um, I think it's Anne Kotab. I can't, I don't know how to, I never knew how to spell her, la, uh, pronounce her last name, but she's from um, Thriving Minds in Michigan. That was probably um, the, the one that helped me so much. I think it's just called Selective Mutism. It really talked a lot about uh, the cycle of the anxiety and then the fact that you'd sort of like feel this when you didn't talk, you'd kind of feel like, oh, this anxiety is going away. And so that not talking became so, so soothing to mm-hmm. you. And so um, really explaining that cycle and then also explaining how to walk through it and work through it. I've so. actually found the the literature to be kind of sparse around selective mutism to really get into the experience or understand it or to to deal with it in concrete ways that are helpful. And not that I've dug in super far. I've been a little outside of selective mutism culture, if there's a such thing. <laughs> I haven't, I would like to. Yeah, so there's the um, Overcoming Selective Mutism, the Parents Field Guide. It's Amy Mm -hmm. Kotrba, K O T R B A. 
and it's um, that was really really helpful. And I agree. In the beginning, there was very little, and so I was uh, there was a group out of Pennsylvania, the Smart Center. I was finding resources on their site. Um, so lots of little handouts and stuff. And then Selective Mutism Association, their conference, there were tons of resources at that, lots of books. That's where I came across a lot of the books and lots of therapists there. Uh, that was super, super helpful um, for me. Great. And Anne, what do you think helps you? Have you been to any support groups or therapy? Not or anything really. Like that? I think I've actually been a little bad on the self-care end of things. Mm. Um, like I said, we do have sort of a family therapy element involved with my daughter's appointments. And it is helpful just to be able to vent or talk through things with her therapist Anytime somebody has a really empathetic response, it's helpful. I've enjoyed her her art therapy meetings because sometimes I do get a chance to to talk individually with her her therapist for that too. Just like what's been going on this week, and she's really good about just responding. Oh, that's really hard. I understand, and even hearing that helps. I don't even really know other people who are going through selective mutism. So it's really great to, to hear and talk with both of you and learn more about that. I have also been uh, working with a woman in Australia to help her edit a memoir. She is an adult who's overcome selective mutism and writes about all of her experiences as a child and the, the places that it took her later in life. So that's been really interesting to hear. And I also deal with it in my own writing. I think one of the themes that I explore is just uh, the subtext within silences or the things that we don't say, even as adults, to each other, and just exploring silence a little artistically. <laughs> right. Okay, great. Thank you. So we've been in a pandemic, which I'm sure, mm -hmm. you know, can be challenging for kids with selective mutism and their parents. So what are some of the ups and downs that you both have experienced with staying home more and even having to do school online in some cases? Have there been any like positives and negatives? And how have you as a parent been navigating and even finding, you know, me time for you? Yeah, the pandemic has had ups and downs, and they've both been very intense for me. As far as online learning, my daughter's coping mechanism has always been avoidance. Just she doesn't like something, run away. And one of the challenges with Zoom school is that it's too easy to run away at home, either literally or more in a, a checked out sense, so that she will often leave the room and I'll have to redirect her <laughs> a lot throughout her school day, or else she'll just be doing something else. Like just, she's such a, a tinker engineer, like building something out of her eraser and a pencil shoved through it or something <laughs> rather than paying attention to the lesson. So there are a lot more distractions and it's much easier to avoid things. It's also harder for her to talk on Zoom just because whenever you're talking, all eyes are on you. So I feel like doing things remotely misses those low stakes casual interactions that could build her confidence. Also not being interested in talking or sharing. I noticed that she gets bored pretty easily with any like project sharing or social emotional learning curriculum over Zoom. 
she checks out really easily. And then for me personally, the hard part with it has been that everything she does and all of the other 23 students in her class or whatever are right there in front of me. And I find myself comparing and comparing her to the kids who will just like go on and chatter on about their weekend or give some out of the world elegant presentation on the Mars rover they built or something like that. And feeling kind of resentful about that sometimes, especially when I see how others react to that alternate personality type and the way that they don't react to her. But on the positive side, um, it's given us a lot of extra time together. And it's let me see everything that she's doing in school, where before it really felt like a black box a lot of times. And occasionally being able to sit through school with her. Sometimes I have also a three-year-old <laughs> to, to manage during that time. But I can be more involved with what she's doing and ask questions that push things further, or I can be her partner for some kind of question that she's supposed to think about or answer. And I feel like I've gotten to know her and trust her better as a learner during all of this. As far as me time, that's hard. <laughs> It usually happens late at night, and I've developed more of a, a late night routine. Like a lot of parents with small kids. <laughs> yeah, so get them to bed, and, and then my day <laughs> begins. Right, great. And Pam, what about you? I know Charlotte, she's overcome it, but is she staying in the house more? Do you think that's helping her? Or for you, too, like how are you? how are you handling yeah. Yeah. So I, I've worked um, out of the home for over 20 years. So uh, my life, I always joke that my life changed very little when the, when the pandemic started. This was kind of like my life uh, before. So, so there's not a, a huge change for me. I was at home um, and, and I, my heart goes out to parents with young children. I don't know how I would have been able to work and then also uh, have helped my kids through school, particularly uh, working through the selective mutism, because I just I just feel so fortunate that this hit when it did for us. Um, Charlotte's super independent, so she gets herself up every morning, gets herself onto Zoom, does all her work, stays up all night, you know, doing her homework and stuff. And um, so she's really just ultra ultra independent. Um, she's a perfectionist. So everything she does is really done well. Uh, so I don't have to have to really monitor any of that. I don't have to worry about it. I, I do worry about, I think she's getting lonely. Um, she's got her friends that they are on chat, but I, you know, she doesn't have a super large group that she's chatting with on her texts and stuff. And I think it's starting to feel small after a year and I think she's ready to be out around other kids and be kind of meeting other kids and those those kind of like somebody sitting next to you and you may not have known them before, really thought much about them, them before, but you're in the same class and you start asking questions about, you know, did you do that homework? Do you understand that? And then eventually you kind of become friends or you know, they they become part of your social circle, and I I think she misses that those those ways of picking up new friends, being around new people, um, and her friendship group is is great and they're really tight. But I do think that you know, in some ways, they might be getting tired of each other a bit, and and really need that uh, that 
that opportunity to get some sort of fresh people around them. So I, I worry about her kind of becoming lonely. And um, But I, I see, though, now that I hope that things are going to really be changing soon and that starting next year, hopefully, it will there will be a lot of kids who are back in school. And so some semblance of, of normality. What advice would you give to parents who are just getting diagnosed with their kids, this selective mutism diagnosis? What advice would you give to those parents, especially you, Pam, since you've kind of been through it and come out the other side? From your own perspectives as a parent, not so much the child, what advice would you give to parents who are like, oh my gosh, what is my kid about to go through? What's, what is this? You know, And what would you say is going to help their well-being as well as their child? Uh, I really feel like kind of letting yourself off the hook and getting to understand selective mutism as much as possible is is really important. And that I, I, I think it's important to talk to the experts in some way, whether there's somebody in your area that you can work with or it's through a phone consultation, but really being able to to talk to those experts that are out there who really just deal or deal mostly with selective mutism because I, I feel like their perspective and their understanding of it is very different than than others. And it's it's helpful to have that education, that knowledge, and to to not be afraid to 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 work on it, to deal with it. Uh, it took us a long time to get into therapy. It took us a long time um, to decide to use medication. And even though we didn't stick with it, I absolutely feel like the medication gave her a jump start that she really needed. And um, and then our, you know, our reluctance to go to the camp. I really, I, I wish we'd done that when she was, you know, four or five had put her in a, the, a camp that was specifically made for selective mutism. So, um, so I just feel like it's that education and not being afraid of it, going, deciding to deal with it and deal with it head on and do what you need to do when they're as young as, as they are. Um, and rather than thinking that it's, you're going to be able to get through it or, or I, I never thought it was just going to go away on its own, but I really felt like we could kind of handle it and, and work through it. And do you have anything to say to that question? Yeah, I would say one thing is just to know and be aware of yourself, of your strengths and weaknesses and triggers too, as a parent and a parent of someone with selective mutism. And then lastly, just love them for who they are and let them know that you love them for who they are, even though you're asking all of these big audacious reaches from them all the time. I sometimes just stop and reassure her, I love you for who you are right now. How can a, another parent out there of a child with selective mutism reach you to connect and maybe help each other? What What are your email addresses? Uh, mine, uh, Pam, it's uh, P M. J Drake at sbcglobal.net. And I'm Anne, A-N-N-E dot Romalo, R-A-M-A-L-L-O at gmail.com. Okay, before we end the episode, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to tell our listeners, especially the parents going through the same thing? 
it was an interesting journey because I, I feel like uh, as the years go on, I get further away and um, sitting on this side of it now, it's it's hard to remember how traumatic it was on the other side at times and um, the, the sense of hopelessness that I felt at lots and lots and lots of moments. And and so I just, I think I do want to say to, to parents that there is hope. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm on the other side and you would never know that, um, that she had gone through this and she is thriving and she is, a, you know, great and, and wonderful and um, has a, a, you know, perfectly normal life. And I'll give this side's perspective on it in the middle of it. Wow. It's hard sometimes. <laughs> and. Uh, I'll admit that and just affirm it for anyone who's also going through it and just validate that. Yes, it's hard and it permeates life in ways that you might not even expect, but here we are. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And before we wrap things up, I'd like to ask you ladies one question that I end every podcast with. And it's a question actually inspired by selective mutism and the importance of using a voice. And that is... If you could only say one more sentence or phrase out loud for the rest of your life, what would it be? It feels trite, but uh, I love you. I think that if I could only say one thing, it would be always look for the silver lining. Well, thank you guys so, so much for offering your time and and discussing your stories. It's been really, really beneficial. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of parents out there who are freaking out and you know, it's it just helps to know you're not alone. So I want to thank you guys so much again for just coming on here and, and discussing. I know that it can be personal and, and emotional sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I really do appreciate it. It's so good just to have this normalized in a way, because it feels so abnormal all the time in the daily experiences. It does. Yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Of course. Of course. Okay, so as I did in the last episode, I'd like to end this podcast with a relative quote, and this one is about parents. We cannot always build the future for our youth, but we can build our youth for the future. And that is from Franklin D. Roosevelt. Thank you guys so much for listening to episode two. I hope you'll join me next time for the final installment in this three-part topic, and that will be episode three, Selective Mutism, The Therapist Perspective. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. I'd greatly appreciate it. Until next time, I hope you all glow and shine bright. <music>